and we called Fairview and Pleasant View, and so we decided, yeah, they had the, they had the same thing, man. They're dealing with all these squirrels, and and we decided we'll just get together and try to come up with a solution to this problem. So uh, we did that. We met. I guess there's a reason why we're not the same church, right? We couldn't agree. We couldn't agree on a solution. You know, those, those Fairview people, they, they are so interested in predestination. They said, the squirrels have to be there. Who are we to interfere with God's will, right? And so, hey, we got to leave them there. You know, they're still dealing with the problem because of that predestination mindset. Uh, Pleasant View, on the other hand, decided that uh, they could not harm any of God's creation. So they humanely trapped these squirrels, set them, let them go outside of town again. Seemed like a good idea, but like three days later, they all came back. They're, they're still doing it. Now, you'll be proud to know that your elder team, Jeff Hicks, works on roofs. He sees squirrels all the time. And so he, he had this great idea that we should baptize them. I'm like, great idea, Jeff. Let's do that. Make him a special member, uh, animal member of our church. So we, we, we caught him. We baptized these squirrels. And you know what? That was a great idea because now we only see the squirrels at Christmas and Easter. <laughs> what? I, I had something to say if you didn't laugh, but you laughed, so I guess I can't say that. Um, Today we're going to talk a little bit at 1 Timothy again, chapter 5, verses 1 through 21, as Paul continues his exhortation to young Pastor Timothy on how to lead God's church. We've been looking into 1 Timothy just to see how Paul has interacted with this young pastor and how he's taught him how to be a leader. He's taught him on such things as godliness, the word, giftedness, balance of life, doctrine, and today we're going to see a couple more issues, a couple touchy issues that he's teaching him on. These letters speak to us as leaders. You know, I'm a coach and they always say, well, only a certain percent of your, of your team is leaders. Well, that might be true on a team, but we are all leaders in life. In some way, shape, or form, we are leading people. We are influencing people in some way. And so even if we're not the stand-in-front leader, we're behind-the-scenes leader. We are leading in some way. And today we want to look at three ways that leaders lead or three principles we can use to guide us as we become the leader God wants us to be. So before we do that, let's pray. Father, quiet our spirits. Help us to sense your spirit as we look into your word today. May you convict us of areas in our lives that we need to change, and may you help us be the leaders that you called us to be. In your name we pray, amen. So first we're going to read 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers. Younger women as sisters in all purity. So point number one is leaders must treat people differently. What? Did I hear you right? Treat people differently? That doesn't sound biblical at all. What are you talking about? Well, my question is, do you treat all the people in your family the same? I play this little game at home. Maybe you play it too. We have a, a family member on the telephone. 
Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your son or daughter. Maybe it's somebody else. And you're listening. You come in the room late, right? You come in, they're talking on the phone, and you want to, you want to know who they're talking to. But you can't ask them because they're talking on the phone. So what do you do? You listen, right? You look for body language. You look for what they're saying, but how they're saying it, right? You look for maybe they're not even talking for five minutes, then you know who they're talking to, right? And so you, you figure that out. And usually for, for, for my family, for my wife, it's a family member, and it takes me about 30 seconds to a minute to figure it out. And now I never will because she'll hide with the phone and I won't get to figure it out anymore since I use this example. But um, that's okay. But, but the, the way I figure it out is by how she's talking, right? What she's saying, what she's not saying, and how she's talking. Because it's a family member and, and she, just like you and me, we talk different to different family members. So does that mean we should treat them different? Well, um, so what does that mean? Well, we know as Christians we're supposed to love all people, Right? 1 Peter 4.8 says, above all, keep loving each other earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins, but we have to do it in different ways. Paul says, encourage the older fellow like he was your dad. Have you ever had to correct or rebuke your dad? I haven't, luckily, but if you have, there's probably a gentle, respectful way you're going to go about doing it, maybe a little bit different than a brother, sister, or son. Um... Younger men, treat them as brothers. For Timothy, it meant he was looking at them as equals. He wasn't superior to anyone. Older, younger, older women as mothers, similar to older men, and treat them with a loving respect in all circumstances, and younger women like sisters. I'm an older brother. I have two younger sisters. Some of you, I'm sure, do as well. Um, you know, there's a way you treat your younger sister, right? I kind of like picking on them myself when I was at home. And some of you did as well. But then when we got out in public, I think, you know, the way you treat them is a little bit different. You didn't want anybody harming your sister. You're protecting them. Very protective as an older brother. So the family illustration permeates these verses. He ends it by saying in all purity. And this definitely means sexual purity, but it also has a bigger meaning than that. It means in all situations, keep yourself pure. So Paul's telling Timothy and us, we need to think of the people in his church like family. They're not customers, clients, students, neighbors. They're more than that. They're family. A healthy family. And to relate to these people in the church as we would a healthy family. What if we did that in all our interactions in life? What if everyone we've come across, we thought of them as family? I know I'm a teacher, and some of you are teachers, and you have kids occasionally that... Oh, hi, balcony. You are up there. I always forget about the balcony because those lights are so bright. Sorry. Uh, we ha I have kids that occasionally get a little annoying, occasionally don't do what I want. And I have to kind of remind myself, you know what? This is someone's son. This is someone's daughter. And if they're my son or my daughter, how would I want to treat them? Right? I have to think of that family uh, analogy as I do that. <laughs> Hebrews 10, 24 says, and let us consider how to stir up one another toward love and good deeds. So our mind should be on what I can do or say to this person to show them love. And that's different for each person. By doing it, we show we have taken the extra step to know that person on a different level. 
So what can I do today to treat this person different, thus showing him the love of Jesus? As a leader, we treat all people with love, but in different ways, which reminded me of a book I read a few years back. Some of you, I'm sure, have read it called The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. It really opened my eyes to, uh, to this concept. If you haven't read the book, the basic concept is that people give and receive love differently. I mean, you may think you're, you're loving someone, but they're not really feeling the love because you're not doing it in their primary love language. The five love languages are giving gifts, physical touch, quality time, acts of service, and words of affirmation. So you may think you're loving someone. This was especially true of a husband-wife relationship. Uh, but they're not feeling the love because their love language is entirely different than yours. And, and, and that's kind of what I'm saying here as we think about that in terms of all people. Uh, we need to think about how if we're doing an act of service for them, maybe that's not their primary love language and we need to maybe spend quality time with them. Um, so that's the concept of my first point, is that leaders need to treat all people differently. Number two, leaders aren't afraid to solve problems. In fact, leaders have the attitude, the mindset that problems provide opportunities. How does God want to use this opportunity for his glory? Let's read in Hebrews 5, verses 3 through 16. Kind of a long passage here. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplication and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that you may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. That's a long passage. So what's going on here? Let me try to summarize what's going on here. Uh, care for widows was a big deal back in that day. Uh, Jesus Christ came and he had made widows a priority. He had, the, the scripture had written and talked a lot about widows. The tradition of the Jewish Christian tradition was that they took care of widows. And in the early church here, it had become a problem because they were spending so much time on widows, they weren't having enough time to spend on spreading the gospel. And so Paul's addressing this problem to Timothy here, and he's telling Timothy, 
we do need to take care of this problem. We still need to take care of widows, but we have to still focus on the gospel. So Paul tells them that you have to honor widows who are truly widows. So who are the widows who are truly widows? And who should the church be taking care of? Honor here also means, you know, they were financially supporting these widows. Uh, there's four classifications of widows listed. Number one, the elder, the older women who are relatives to support them. Number two, the older God-fearing women who had no relatives to support them. Three, older self-indulgent women. And finally, the younger widows, who, which means in this case under 60. And of those four categories, the only one the church was supposed to be supporting was the second group, who was the godly widows who had no family to support them. Group one, the widows who had family were supposed to be supported by their immediate family, as verse 8 and verse 16 are very clear, that the main responsibility for caring for widows lies in the family. Group three was the self-indulgent women. They were not to be supported. The passage says she is dead even while she lives, so we're to let her go. Self-indulgence means to live excessively in luxury. So if she's doing this, she doesn't need help from the church. And finally, group four, the younger widows, uh, the ones under 60 are not also to be on the church's financial roles. Um, they are widows, but according to Paul, they're not the church's responsibility because Paul's concern is the spiritual damage that could be done if the church takes permanent responsibility for them. He wants them to go about their life working to care for themselves for three reasons. Number one, their desire might lead them away from Jesus. Hopefully not, but it could. Number two, they might want to get remarried. Or three, if we give them no reason to work, they're going to become gossips and busybodies if we just support them when they could be working. So the two main qualifications on the list of widows that the church was supposed to support were they needed to have no family around to help them, and they needed to be godly. Take a little sidebar here and just talk a little bit about verse 8. Verse 8 says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And in fact, right before in verse 7, it says, Command these things. So obviously, this is a pretty important uh, verse right here. And this verse actually goes farther than just widows. Um, you have the responsibility to care for your aging parents. This isn't always a fun thing to do, and it's a really hard thing to do. It's uh, something, obviously, at my age I've had to deal with. Um, verse 4 tells us why children and grandchildren should take care of widows in their family, and it also applies to aging parents. Number one, it shows godliness. Two, it makes them return to their parents. In other words, pay back for a little bit for what they've done for you. And finally, it's pleasing to God. So, you know, as I get older and I'm convicted of this verse, I, I, I'm involved in a circle. And that circle has people of similar age to me in it. And I'm just incredibly encouraged every week when I go to that circle because I see this verse lived out in, in all my people's lives in that circle. I mean, I see them taking care of their brothers, their sisters, their parents. Sometimes they're not at circle because they're with their parents. They're with their, their family members that need them. And that is so encouraging to me. And I know that the people in my circle aren't the only ones that are doing that. I know a lot of you, most of you, probably all of you do that. And that's highly encouraging. But the, the other thing about the verse says relatives, right? So, so how far does this relative thing go? Am I supposed to take care of my 
you know, my third cousin's uncle or something? You know, how far do I take this relative thing? Um, in the Old Testament, or New Testament there, in that day, there was a lot, you know, the relatives were the people of your household. The people of your household may be brothers and sisters and their children. Um, if it went any farther than that, I guess that's kind of up to you. I'm going to leave that up to you and God. I'm not going to answer that question for you. But relatives, we need to think about what can we do to help our relative, especially if they don't have other family members that are around to do that. So Paul gives Timothy some sound advice here about how to help him solve this major problem in the church at Ephesus. So how do you solve problems? Timothy's got some advice to how to solve this problem. Are you, a, are you a problem solver or are you just a person who points out problems and then kind of runs the other direction? Um, how do you handle confrontation? Are you the type of person that avoids it at all costs? I don't know too many people that just seek it out. I worked with one once. That wasn't fun. But there's not a whole lot of people like that. Um, is your attitude one where you see problems or conflict as an opportunity to grow, or do you avoid them? That's really probably a whole series, not just one point. But I want to point you to uh, uh, the best book that I've ever read on this subject called The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. And I would encourage you to read that book if problem solving or confrontation, or if you're in a counseling role and, and it's, it's great advice and great help. But I want to just encourage you with four G's from Sandy's book on how to deal with problems. And uh, as those come up on the screen, I just want to talk about them a little bit. His four G's for dealing with problems and being a peacemaker. Number one, as in anything, we, should, we have to glorify God, right? How can, I use, how can I glorify God and honor God in this situation? And, and I look at it as whatever the problem is, as an opportunity to do that. That's difficult in a lot of situations. Number two, get the log out of your own eye. How can I see Jesus work in me by taking responsibility for my role in this conflict? You know, I, I, uh, I don't know if I'm pretty good at this, but I've had a lot of experience at it because I've had a lot of logs in my own eye, right? I mean, I've had a lot of, I'm always part of the problem. And so, if, if I'm part of the problem, then I need to be the person who initiates the conflict resolution, and I need to go to the person and be the one who says, here's what I did wrong, I'm sorry, how can we make this better? Number three, probably a little more difficult, gently restore. How can I lovingly serve others by helping them take their responsibility for their role in this conflict? That's a little bit more difficult. I can admit my own role. Um, I, I can honestly say when I've come to someone with the right attitude to apologize, I've never had anyone say, nope, get out of here, I'm not accepting your apology. But I haven't always had them do number three, right? I haven't always had them admit their role in the problem as well. And so it could be kind of hard if the, if, if the relationship can't be restored until you know, they've done something as well, but your job is to try to lovingly lead them back in that direction. And finally, number four, go and be reconciled. How can I demonstrate the forgiveness of God and encourage a reasonable solution to this conflict? 
the goal of all problems and all conflict is, restora is re restoration and reconciliation, right? It's to make the relationship right. It's to make, solve the problem and go in a way that, that both parties or multiple parties can, can learn from it and be better people. So the bottom line is that as leaders, we, expect, we should expect God to use us during conflict. You know, when I coached, I, I looked at, I tried to look at conflict that way. I tried to look at problems that way. Here's a chance for me to, God to use me in this situation to bring glory to himself and to help high schoolers learn how to deal the right way with conflict. Every single problem that you have in life is an, is an opportunity for you to become better or to become bitter. And so what are you going to do? So two points. Number one, lead, leaders lead people differently. Number two, leaders aren't afraid to solve problems. And finally, leaders honor other leaders. In fact, really, this whole section talks about honor. The first part, honoring people in your church. The second part, honoring widows. And finally, the third part here, where we're looking to honor other leaders, which would be our pastor. So let's read verses 17 through 20. Let the elders who lead well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear." You're a leader, but you're not the leader in every situation that you're in. You know, no one is. Everybody has someone who's over them at some point in time. I'm a teacher. The people that are over me, my principal, my superintendent, my school board. Um, we all have people that lead us. And it's our job it, to honor those people. In the church, there's a chain of command as well. And that chain of command includes the pastor as our spiritual leader. So how should we treat our pastor? What are some things we, we should be doing? Do you see now why I'm preaching this week? This passage? Yeah, okay. That's, this is kind of an awkward passage for an actual pastor to speak because even in the passage, it says elders and I'm an elder, but it's really talking about the elders that preach and teach, the ones that are, that are paid to do that. And so I... It was great. I would love preaching this because I, I love talking about our pastors and I love talking about things that, that we try to do to, to help them. So um, what should we do from this passage to bring honor to our pastors? You know, we need to we bring honor to all our leaders. In this particular section of Scripture, it talks only about pastors. So I have three ideas, three things that I think we need to do to bring honor to our pastors. Number one, Pay them what they deserve. Pay them well. There's two quotes in this passage that say that. You shall not muzzle the ox when he's treading out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. You know, the passage actually says double honor, and when we were doing sermon preparation, Aaron tried to convince me the Greek word for that was double pay. No, he, he didn't. But uh, that's not what it is. It's actually double honor means pay and respect, which is the second point. Um, so what is, what's well mean? Pay them well. Okay, what's that mean? 
Well, I think that well just means in the situation you're in, in the congregation you're in, the pastor should make a good wage based on their, the people in their church. They shouldn't be paid way higher than most of the people, the average income of their church, but they shouldn't be martyrs for the faith and be paid way less than people in their church either. They should be getting a wage where they can make a living on as pastors of this church. You know, we've had a problem here. I know some of you have been here for a long time and it's not of the squirrel variety. Um, why do we go through so many pastors at Sun Life? What the, what, what's going on, right? I mean, you look back on our history and, and uh, it's not good. As John McCoy became an elder a few years ago and as Bill and Jeff were added a, a couple just last, about a year ago, um, we looked at that question. We looked at it long and hard. And we basically decided that we wanted our tenure as elders to, be, to, to look, to have people, when they look back on it, say two things about us. Number one, we want to do whatever we can do to keep our pastors healthy. That's our goal. We want to do whatever we can do to keep our pastors healthy. Because if you have healthy pastors, you have a healthy church, right? What do you think John got a sabbatical? And by the way, I don't know how anyone could use a sabbatical any better than Pastor John used a sabbatical in the last year when he took his three months off. I was extremely happy with that. But that's why we did it, right? I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it was in his contract, but we want to do it, and we want to make that a normal practice here, not an exception, because we want our pastors to stay healthy. That is incredibly important. And then number two, they need to feel valued. Right? They have to feel valued as pastors, that what they do matters. Now, there's different ways. You know, the passage says the elders who direct the affairs of the church and who are pastors and teachers. That's who, you know, that we're talking about here. They labor for us daily. They serve you weekly. Um, if you think all Pastor John does is preach on Sunday morning, you got, you know, that's not quite accurate. You know, if you think all Pastor Aaron does is get up here on Sunday morning and lead worship. There's a lot to do as a pastor, a shepherd, a congregate. We could go on forever. But we need to make them feel valued by our prayers, by our positive comments, but also financially, right? You feel valued when you get a raise. You feel valued financially that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. Now, we might all, financially, you guys have been awesome in the, in the last few years, and we've been able to do that. Um, maybe we won't always be able to do that. We hope that we can. But we want them to feel honored and valued by paying them what they deserve. And then also, just we want them to be as healthy as they possibly can. So the first thing that we need to do for our pastors is pay them well. The second thing we need to do is respect them. Yeah, we need to respect the position, but we have to respect the person. So how do you respect a pastor? Well, I think one thing is maybe you don't listen to, you know, everything you hear about them. If there's negative things, right, you give the pastor the benefit of the doubt. You know, in, in my years as an elder here, one of the things I've realized that, you know, pastors make mistakes too, right? They're, they're just people. They're people that have given their lives to serve Christ, but they're going to not do everything perfect all the time, right? They might not treat you the way you think you should be treated sometimes. They might... Uh, uh-oh, I don't know that I've ever heard this, but maybe they would say a swear word occasionally. Maybe they would do something that 
uh, isn't what you would consider pastorish. I think one of the uh, American problems in the church is that we raise pastors to a superhuman position that, that there's, no, that there's no way they can do that. There's no way they can live up to that. Sure, there are spiritual leaders. They're trying to. They, they, we want them to, but we have to um, make sure that, that we give them the benefit of the doubt just like we would a, a fellow believer, just like we would another person. And I would encourage you to do that. But yet on the other hand, as we respect them, as we, you know, we're loyal to them, we, try, we want them to have success in their ministry here. We don't overlook sin if there's sin in their lives, right? I mean, that's the third point. Yeah, we give them a break. We give them the benefit of the doubt. But if there's sin in their lives, then that's something that has to be dealt with. And this, the passage says... Hold them accountable if they sin. That's what we need to do. And take two or three people with you. You know, if you hear an accusation by one person, you probably don't listen to it. If you hear it by two or three or four people from different sources, from different angles, that's probably something you need to deal with as a person in a congregation. And you know what? That shouldn't just be true for your pastor. That should be true for every one of your fellow believers. Matthew 18 says take people with you, confront them of their sin, and try to get them changed. Again, the, the restoration and reconciliation is our goal. The interesting thing about this passage is it says, for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. It's kind of scary, right? You get an elder or pastor up here and rebuking them for their sin. Well, it, well if that ever happens, the only way that it's going to happen is one of two things. They're up here to repent or they're, they're not up here because they've already been, they're already gone from their position because they, they wouldn't repent, right? So then as a church, our job is to say what happened, not, not, not put it under the rug, but so you guys understand sin is something that we take seriously. So I would encourage you to, to uh, value your pastors, respect them, Love them, pray for them, but hold them accountable as well, just like you would your fellow believer. And don't be afraid to bring things up if you think they're as an issue. Now, I'm not saying this because I want you to come running to me after church, but I have been here for like seven years, and I really don't have people come and talking to me much about different issues in the church. I really don't. Now, that's okay if you don't have any. I'm not, I'm not begging for problems, okay? But if you do, don't be afraid to talk to Jeff or John or Bill or I because well, that's why we're here. We want to try to make this church better, and we want to try to uh, make it a place where God's word is preached and where God's kingdom is advanced. And, and that's our goal. That's the only reason we're here, and, and we want to do that the best we can. So in conclusion... Leaders must lead and love people differently, not be afraid to deal with conflict, problems, and they should honor other leaders, especially their pastor. So what? So what does that mean for you? Where do you need to step up your game a little bit? Where's God convicting you today? Is there someone you're not treating, like a family member maybe? Maybe not financially, but... Maybe just emotionally. Maybe you need to help them in some other way. Do you need to change your approach to how you're loving someone? Maybe you thought you were doing it a certain way and they just were resisting your, your advances. Maybe you need to change, try a different method. 
Is there a problem at home or work that you've just kind of been ignoring, hoping it would go away? You know, they, they, they usually don't. You've just been putting it off because you're afraid of what might happen if, you've, if you deal with it. You know, fear can be a crippler. You know what fear stands for, right? Fear stands for false expectations appearing real. So don't let fear get in the way of dealing with the problem that you need to deal with in your marriage, in your work relationships, whatever it might be. Are you honoring the, le- honoring the leaders in your life? Are you talking bad about your pastor? Are you talking bad about your boss? Are you bringing them honor with how you treat them? Not just to their face, obviously, but also behind their back. So where's God talking to you today? As you think about that, I just want you to know that uh, Psalter's always open if you want to come and pray. And as we close and sing the last song, I just want, you know, I want the Holy Spirit to just be here and convict you of anything that he needs to deal with in your life. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this opportunity to come today and worship you and to hear your word. Lord, we love your word. We love how it speaks into us and it just gives us life. It helps us not to ignore the things in our lives that that we need to deal with, but it gives us the courage and the strength to overcome any fear that we have and to realize that if we want to live for you, we need to follow what you tell us to do in your word. And I just pray that your spirit would be here, your spirit would love, your spirit would convict, your spirit would be used to change lives. And I just thank you for this opportunity that you've given us today. In your name we pray.